0: Turn in your Bibles, please. Chapter 1 of Ruth, Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In the days when Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech; his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mallon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they have lived there about ten years, both Malin and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud. And said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We begin a four-part series on the book of Ruth. Uh, I've been wanting to do the book of Ruth for five years. Uh, for some reason, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because my sister's name Naomi Ruth. My dad didn't want to miss it, so Naomi Ruth. This is there's not only two books in the Bible named after women: Ruth and Esther. One of the four women in the genealogy of Christ in the Book of Matthew: Rahab the harlot, Tamar, Ruth, and Bathsheba. So it's a marvelous book. But there's a great theme in this book that is often overseen. Uh, The book's theme is really redemption. It's used 23 times. It's the word redeem, redemption, kinsman, goel in Hebrew. Twenty-three times, two key themes in the book, two great truths. Here it is written after the time of the judges, before the monarchy begins. And of course, it describes the family tree of King David, the greatest king Israel ever had. So we have a record here of that genealogical background of this king, and would be very practical uh, in the Hebrew mindset. But God said, there's a message here I want in Scripture for all time. Then I think the second lesson that will develop, we just begin it today, but as we come to chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4, the hero in the story is a man called a kinsman redeemer who is a striking parallel to the great redeemer in Christ Jesus we have and so we see an Old Testament glimpse. Let me say this, all Scripture ultimately points to Christ. It's a Christocentric book. And uh, sometimes as doctrinal preachers don't like to mess with historical books to our own chagrin as though we know better than God what to say to his people. He wanted to say what he says in the book of Ruth. And so we want to look at chapter 1. And I see chapter 1 in this romance of redemption that we would call the book, The Romance of Redemption. That chapter 1 to me shouts one great theme, the ruin of the redeemed, the ruin of the redeemed. Now, you could take that two ways. I think I'm really thinking two ways the ruin of those outside of Christ that need to be redeemed. Now, the thing with Ruth and uh, with Naomi, they were believers at this time. And so I would say of them, their ruinous condition until they got back and came into touch with a man that had to redeem them. But they were believers. But I would like to, by analogy, also connected to what it's like to be outside of Christ and to be away from God, as seen in chapter one. And uh, let's uh, just look at scene one, verses one through five. Uh, they're the ruinous circumstances of a family. The ruinous circumstances of a family. And I, I come up with about seven things that make them ruinous, if you'll look at it. Uh, number one, when in the days when the judges ruled, stop there. Judges is the most deplorable condition of Israel, maybe only parallel to their pre-exile before God took them into Syria and Babylon. They are backsliding. They uh, trust God. Every time they get in trouble, they cry to God. God, in great mercy, rescues them. They get peace with a benevolent leader, and they'll have that peace for as long as that man's there. He dies. What do they do? They go right back to sin. They go right back. God raises up a judge. In the meantime, uh, he'll clean house a little bit, deliver them from their enemies, goes back. I believe the cycle is about seven to nine times. Repentance, renewal, Uh, return to our sin. Back, it reminds me a lot of people, the only time they think of God is when they're in trouble, when their enemies are So it's a tumultuous time in which this family is born, just like being born in 2011. You'll be born in perilous times if you're born in 2011. And so uh, it's a ruinous time. Two, uh, it's a time of famine. And uh, famine is interesting in the land. The land of Israel, God was the owner. Israel was the renter. He said, you can live in my land, stay in my land, as long as you pay the rent. And the rent is serve me, acknowledge me. And he said in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, if you don't serve me in the land... And if you go to other idols, I will withhold rain. I will bring enemies. And if you read Deuteronomy 28:29, do not read it before you go to bed. It is atrocious, the curses that God said he would bring on his people. And so one of the curses coming on them in the time of the judges, I'm going to withhold the rain. Texas is having one of the worst droughts they have had in over a hundred years, while just a few states over, guess what, they're having floods. Did you know God controls whether we get rain or not? God controls. You can't vote it in up at uh, Sacramento, California will have rain this year. Because all the, uh, the cats that think they're running this country aren't running hardly anything. You can't control tsunamis earthquakes, hurricanes, typhoons. You can't keep the Northeast from being drowned up in Vermont. Who's in charge of all of this stuff? Don't you know the country's already bankrupt? We don't have billions of dollars to bail these people out. God's setting up here I control, wind, storm, lightning, and thunder. And he brings a famine to the land. Maybe like he's bringing to... United States. The money's drying up. The weather's eating us up. Where do you turn? What's the famine from? The divine judgment of God is on the land of Israel while they're living there. And so Elimelech, he says, we got to get out of here. And uh, so what does he do? He goes into exile to a Gentile country. One of the great themes of the Bible is man is in exile. Man has felt like he's not at home ever since he was kicked out of Eden. And every once in a while, a melancholy streak comes over you. Is this the best there is? Is this the way God meant for it to be? Is this the paradise of God? And all of a sudden, everything in you wants to step outside next to uh, the uh, Pacific Ocean, go over to the cliff house, and scream with all your lungs, this is a world under a curse. This is not my true home. This is a world under curse. This is a world that is groaning that Adam and Eve sinned and things are dying. Things are turned upside down. I'm in exile in this world. Because we really are, and we never get home until Revelation 21, and we enter the new Jerusalem. We finally get home. But in the meantime, we're in exile in this world. That's why he says, We judge that we are pilgrims and strangers in this world. This world is not my home. I don't belong here. I am just putting in my time. My body says he's got a better body, a better environment, better politics, better ecology, and it's all coming in my new home. I'm not home yet. I met the owner of the new home, but I'm not there yet. And then, of all things, they are in exile in Moab. Moab is an ancient enemy of Israel. You know, it's one thing for you to get mad at me, but it's another thing for you to run around with my enemies. It's one thing for you to leave because of famine, but for you to go to Moab, Moab has been fighting them ever since the book of Judges. Do you remember a guy by the name of Balaam that hired or was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to put a curse on Israel? Uh, These Moabites are no friend. And this nation, where did Moab come from? Moab is the incestuous son of Lot with his daughters in a cave outside of Sodom. One night, one girl had sex with him. The next night, another girl had sex with him. Both got pregnant in that incestuous cave relationship. One gave birth to Moab. The other gave birth to Ammon, the father of the Ammonites. Not a good people as a whole. In exile, in a people that are opposed to God, for the most part. Then what else? While we're there, God does another thing that he does. He killed off the family. My husband died, and these boys, even their names, I don't know if you, let me give you up the meaning of their name. Malon, this is his name meant sick, and his brother Chilion meant pining, now you name your children. I mean, just so, as so, so. we have a new boy, let's name him sick. We've got another boy, on We'll name you Pining. I mean. From from the get-go, so the children there, right from birth and conception, right there they say, these boys are not normal. They're sickly. They're they're pining from, from birth, but they did reach Uh, maturation. They they were able to marry eventually, but from the get-go, they were sickly in an exiled land out of Israel. But Naomi's going to return with no husband, no sons, no grandchildren, and two Gentile daughter-in-laws that she couldn't imagine. That I'm stuck with these gals? This is it. Um, She goes back as a widow. And to be a widow in the land, there was no Social Security. That's not even comforting today. I'd hate to be a widow on Social Security today. I go back with no future. I go back with no one to sustain me. I go back with no grandchildren. Uh, I am in a ruinous condition as a family. What is there left to take but Naomi herself? The ruined condition. I look at it, and in my mind, I see such an analogy to the human family. In exile to God, living in death, dead while we're alive, you see, you're not living in the land of the living and going. You know, we get to say, I'm going to leave the land of the living for the. No, you're living in the land of the dying. You're going to the land of the living. Everything around you is dying. We you know how many funerals we'll do this year, but everybody in this place is dying. And the older you get, you're going to do, attend a lot more funerals than weddings. You're going to have to get used to it, and the young crowd isn't used to funerals because you think you're going to live forever. You're going to bury your parents, and when you get to be the age of some of us, we're asking, will I bury my wife or will she bury me? Sin and death and dying has left us in exile. It has ruined the human family. We are desperately in need of a Redeemer. We are desperately in need of somebody that can rescue us from death, dying, exile, our barrenness, our alienation from God. Scene 2, we pick up in verse 6 to 14. Naomi, in these verses, laments that she cannot help her daughter-in-laws because she says, I can't give you any more sons to marry. And uh, uh, she puts a blessing on them in verse 8. May the Lord bless you. May he be kind to you, your wonderful gals. You have been great to me. You were good to your husbands. May the Lord grant that you may find rest. Each of you in the house of her husband, verse 9, to be a young widow was like a curse. I'm praying, may God end your widowhood. But he goes on to say, but I'm too old to fill the bill for you. Don't cling to me. Uh, I I have no more children in this womb. Uh, I'm not even, I'm widowed. And even if i married, and if I should be on the wedding night, conceive a child, you'd have to wait for years to get a... Girls, your hope, your future cannot be found in me. I can offer you no future. Matter of fact, I'm wondering who's going to feed me, who's going to take care of me, because you see, you'll find out that she had to sell her property off, to feed herself, and when she goes back to Bethlehem, she has no property. She is uh, uh, stripped of her land that her husband had. She she's a stripped woman. She's been ruined by her troubles. She's in great pain so much that she renames herself. Don't call me Naomi. I'm a woman that's bitter. I'm a bitter woman. I've had bitter experiences. Calamity has come over my soul and over my family tree. What's your family tree like? Has ruinous things moved in on your family? Sons and daughters in trouble? Grandchildren in trouble? Your wife died? Your wife, your husband divorced you. Death on some level. Ruinous. No future. No hope. And this country has millions of people that will sit at a bar tonight on an uncomfortable bar stool and drink until they close because their life is in ruin and nobody can give them a future. If they don't do that they'll take prescription drugs or they'll take hard drugs or they'll eat potato chips and drink cokes until they weigh 300 pounds cuz they have nothing to live for Sin leaves you ruined stripped She tells him get away get away I have nothing to offer I'm I'm too old to fulfill you and to give you a future. Then we go to one of the most moving portions. (laughs) Uh, When I grew up, verses 15 through 18 was the classic verses used at all weddings. Yeah, it's classic. And after you said the vows and everything... Or you would sometime and and there were songs that would go this way and it would go this way for where you go I will go. And, and and this bride and groom are looking at each other, where you go, I will go. And you get and and where you lodge? I hope I will lodge. No, I will lodge. Your people, including your mother. Shall be my people, and seldom your God shall be my God. Well, that, I mean, here where they're half drunk when they're doing this, it didn't have a lot of meaning. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be married, buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. If anything but death parts, I mean, is this not beautiful? I mean, it it is so magnificent. The strangest thing is, it's a daughter-in-law talking to a mother-in-law. Can you imagine you saying this to your mother-in-law? Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you go, I don't want to be. Where you are, I don't want to lodge. Your home, keep it to yourself, is not my home. But this is two widowed women, and this Gentile girl has has an overwhelming, loyal bond. Uh, I believe that Naomi must have led her to the Lord down there in Moab because the first daughter-in-law, Orpah, she, she goes back, and Naomi says, go back to your people. Go back to your mother's house. Go back to your gods. And the god of Moab was Chemosh, a terrible god. And she, she took it. She went back. But Ruth says to her mother-in-law, your god is my god. I met the god of Israel. I've given up the idolatry. I want the god of Abraham. And God's got to let this Gentile girl in. I believe. I'm a proselyte. You've got to let me in. And where you lodge, Naomi, and I know you're a widow. I know you've sold your property. I know you don't offer me anything, and neither do I except a loyal love. Let me tell you this. The greatest thing you can give anybody is a loyal love. And that's all Ruth had to offer. And Naomi said, you don't have to go back if you love me that much. When I proposed to my wife, I was broke. I had $300 to my name. I was in finishing my second year of Bible college. We were 20 years old. I was already preaching. And I preached for small churches, churches between 50 to 100 people. Their pastors made $5,000 a year. Her pastor made $5,000 a year. Her dad despised me because he was the son of a preacher and he didn't want his daughter marrying a preacher because he was sick of the poverty they grew up with in the name of ministry. And when I proposed to my wife at 19, no, I was 19. That's when we became engaged. I said to her, Carolyn, we can't afford to get married. I'm still in school. I'm in love with you. I don't want to sleep with you till we're married. I want you to be pure, I want to be pure. And all of our generation was sleeping with everybody. This is the 60s, free love, sex, and drugs. But you know Christ, and so do I. I'd rather be broke and pure than impure and rich. We'll marry, but we'll be broke. That's the only few And then I said, the only thing I offer you is a loyal love. I will never love another woman enough to sleep with her, to have children with her. I promise you, I'll give you all of me. And she was in love enough to take the gamble. When ruin is all around you, here in the manure pile of the book of Judges, in the manure pile of idolatry, apostasy, backsliding, you get one of the purest depictions of love, and you'll see it between Ruth and Boaz, but it first starts that this Gentile girl had a love that would not let go. And I want to tell you, in the midst of ruinous times, the sweetest thing on this earth is when people love each other. Whether it's a mother-in-law or daughter-in-law, whether it's you come together Thanksgiving or Christmas, It is terrible for families to fight with each other. It's terrible when hate is on any level. The greatest thing, the greatest thing this side of heaven and this side of the cross is when you become so devoted that you can love someone. And she did it in the tumultuous era when everybody is sleeping with everybody and everybody's going to another God and going to the high places in Israel and doing the abominable in God's sight, and God says, write this down, write this down. We don't even know who wrote Ruth. It was written after the events, and we see this loyal love. Finally, we come to scene four, and we um, get a picture of Naomi's perspective when she comes back. Verse 19, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. A good-sized town in this era would be about 500 people. So the grapevine went quick. Everybody knows you're in town. It's like you left Rodeo. Well, everybody can know it in a day. I mean, Rodeo's not that big, you know. But what if it's just 500 people? And, And so the grapevine. And the women said, is this Naomi? She'd been gone 10 years. And when she went out, she went with uh, Imelech uh, and a man that, uh, of standing, was in a good family, a good man. She went out a married woman. Things seemed fine except for the famine. And then they say, why, Naomi, no, don't, don't, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? How's that? He took my son, he's taken my husband, and he's taken my land, and I come back a widow, broken woman. Somebody's been against me, and I see it as the Lord. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. There's many verses in the Bible that do say that God brings calamity on us. That's right. Not only good, but calamity. He brought the famine in the land. Uh, He caused the sons to be born puny. So puny they died, probably young. The two women are young enough to remarry. And uh, she's back in Bethlehem. At least she's in the right place. She finally got out of the land of Israel's enemies. God not blessing down in Moab. He blesses back in in the land. And they happen to get back to Bethlehem. Of all things, Bethlehem, little Bethlehem. Who would ever know that these two women are going to wind up Becoming a part of the messianic line. Who would have ever thought? Do you think Naomi thought as she came back to Bethlehem, "Yippee! I'm going to be the great, 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 the great grandmother of the greatest king of Israel, David, who will foreshadow the greatest king of history, King Yeshua Messiah over the nations." Had no clue. No clue. Because, you see, sorrows had changed her perspective. God was no longer the God who blessed. He was the God who was against her. And she'd become a bitter woman. Now, there's two ways you can be bitter. Uh, You can be bitter because of an unresolved difference with people. And Ephesians says, put away all bitterness, anger, and wrath. Get rid of it. Uh, It's amazing how many people have been carrying garbage for 10 years and they wonder, we wonder why we can't get a smile. If you knew how much garbage was in their heart, you would be amazed they even show up. That's why they don't sing. They're hoping that something will happen in the service that will, might do something. You know what you need to do? You need to empty the garbage can. And it's your heart. You need to forgive. You need to put it behind you. You need to put, put it back. But there's another way I think people become bitter. Sorrows. Uh, I've had trials where I was not good company. I've had trials where you better do the scripture quoting and you better do the talk because I don't have anything to say. I feel like I'm run over, beat up, and if you want to sing Lamentations, I'll join you on that, but put it in the minor key. Please don't hit a major chord. And she comes back this way. I went out full. I've come back empty. I have no future. The curtain is drawn over my life. It's over. I'm just biding time, and besides that, I'm now stuck with this girl that loves me. And I don't have any finances. I don't have any way to take care of her. Uh, I'm just stuck with a gal that won't let go. I'm, I can almost see Ruth just clinging to her feet. I love you, mother. Well, I do too, honey, but I can't give you a husband. I can't feed you, and we have no future, and you're not worth a hoot to help me solve that problem. Oh, oh, don't say too much, mother in law. Your future's going to be tied up in this girl. And some of you, um, you've drawn the curtain over your life because uh, God has not kept you from every sorrow and every pain. You have had a divorce. You do have children that are lost. You do have kids that don't talk to you. How do you live with that pain? What is your future? Um, Let me ask you this. Was Naomi a believer? Yeah, she was. And obviously, Ruth had accepted the God of Israel. Let me ask you this. Now, now, now think on this. Was, it hadn't been revealed yet, but let's ask. Was Romans 8.28 true in the book of Ruth? All things are working together for good to those who love God, how they love God. Now, are all things working together for good to us who've had calamity, sorrows, pain? Do you really believe that? Good. There's going to be times you want to choke that verse. It can't be working for good. Well, let me say this. Hear, hear this, this line. It's good. It's mine. I get this. Hear me. You got to get this big point. This is the big point right now. If you miss this point, you can go home after you give your offering. When you don't know the plan, your problems will make you think there is no future. When you don't know the plan, they don't know what's going on. Your problems will make you think you have no... Everything's against me. You know where that phrase came? Everything is against me. Let me give you some people. Jacob, Genesis 43. Let me just give you the context. Joseph's got a plot to get his father down to Egypt. You know what his plot is? He sends his brother back and said, you must bring me my brother Benjamin. He was his true birth brother. The others were by another woman. But this is my birth brother, Benjamin. You go back, and unless you bring Benjamin, there's no more grain, no more food, and I'm going to keep you other brothers here. You tell them to send Benji, or it's over. They go down to Jacob, who's already in his heart, has buried Joseph. He's got his sons down here in Egypt, and all of a sudden they say, We've got to send Benjamin, Dad. Or the, the man said, no more grain. And he's thinking, it's mine. I sent Joseph out to find his brothers, and he never came back. Now you're asking for Benjamin, the only other son I have by that wife? And he said this, everything is against me. And Do you know what the truth was? Everything was working for him. But he didn't know the plan. He didn't know the plan. When you don't know the plan, you can think everything happening against you is taking away your future. Uh, Another man, uh, Joseph himself. Could you imagine what Joseph was writing in his journal when he's in a prison cell for doing the right? And he's down there, and, and then he talks to the butler and the, the cupbearer, remember me, and some estimate it, it was 5 to 10 years before they ever remembered him. And so he's spending his youth in a, uh, an Egyptian cell. He probably was put in that jail maybe 20. So he's there. They figured he was 30 years old when he got. How would you like to spend some of the best years of your life in an Egyptian prison? I was in Morocco to a big prison. It was a big cave in the heart of the earth where they killed the crusaders. No, 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 no. This was not uh, color TV. This was not good conditions. And Joseph said, I know what you've meant for evil against me. God's worked for good eventually. But when you don't know the plan, you don't think you have a future. I think a Job, had no idea what was going on in the heavens. And he had a wife, said, you need to curse a God like this that would let you go through so much calamity when you've been doing the right. And she was right if you didn't know the God that could let you suffer while he's getting ready to unveil the greatest plan in your life. Peter says, you will suffer but after you have suffered a while, you shall come forth as pure gold. Never promised immunity from the suffering, but promise a purpose in it. And uh, I think of uh, this dear woman. And uh, providence is a theological term that God is continually involved with all creation in such a way that he keeps maintaining it. He keeps working alongside the actions of kings. Not even a bird in this universe falls to the ground without God's permission. Nothing moves, lives, has its being except in God's hand. Acts 17 on Mars Hill. You can't even move your hand if God doesn't determine it. You try it. You have a stroke. Watch my brother-in-law die. I knew he was in the last moments when I went to the doctor. She said, lift your left hand. He couldn't lift his left hand. I knew he was dying when 10 times in a week, we picked him up. And one day I said, we got to get you in the bed, Richard. And, And he's laying in the floor. He says, I don't have the strength to get in the bed. You must, you must. But God had determined your strength is over. Every bit of strength, you can't even curse God unless he gives you enough strength to do it. I raise up Nebuchadnezzar. I raise up Hitler's. I raise up and allow the evil to even seem to be. I even allow Satan to test my servant Job. I control everything in the heavens and the earth. I'm not a God that's impotent. I'm not a God that has been trapped by man's sin or by Satan's strategies. I am God, and I have even raised up the wicked for the day of evil, but I will have the last say. This is our God, our God. He is not a limp-wristed old man up there with paralysis. No, he is I am. I was telling God today in prayer, I am weak, and, and I need you. And I was using I am, and, and as I said that a few times, I thought, oh, oh, I'm talking about the wrong I am. And so I just wrote in my journal, I am, and I wrote down everything, and it was kind of an ugly list. But then I put, but I serve, and I am. And he's got all power, all sufficiency, all capability. He, he's the difference. And you know what he's saying? If I can talk to a bush, if I'm in it, I can use you, Howard. And I said, bush shining up. Here I am, bush showing up. I am, speak to a bush. And that's why God saved you. He could do something even with you. And the best we can call you is Brother Bush. (laughs) Sister Bush. If you don't like that, he called you a cracked vessel in 2 Corinthians. We are vessels, containers of the message. But the word he used was ostraca. You're the kind that breaks every eight days. It was real cheap pottery. They put the water in it. It broke every eight days. And he says, you're a crackpot, but I want to put my message in you. I want to put my message in you. And if I don't hold you together, you'll fall apart. And so old Moody said, the only way a cracked vessel could remain full is under the fountain. You've got to stay under the fountain. You're cracked. You leak. You can't hold much you got to remain. Jesus said it this way. you got to remain in contact with the vine. You can't do squat without me. That is the nice vernacular of America. You can do nothing without me. Try it. It'll ruin your life. So, what do we learn? God knows right where you are, even in a famine. Two, pain, loss, all have the threat of changing your perspective on God's will for your life. Dear child of God, I don't know what you're going in, going through or in. And dear, dear man or woman of God that is a church attender but not a believer, my heart aches for you because in your ruin there's no hope but jesus there's no future except in jesus and if you don't accept the kinsman redeemer you have no future but uh, eternal separation from god i say that with no joy it's if i could i would i would eliminate the doctrine of hell but i i don't love any, I can't even be compared to how much God loves who said, I'll separate you from me for eternity if you don't run to my son. I, I, I won't separate you because you're ruined. I won't separate you because you're in sin. I won't separate you from your bad genealogy and your bad family tree and this sin and that. That's no, 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 no. It's where will you go with your ruin? Will you run to Jesus or will you say, I choose to suffer alone and I'll go to the idle fixes of this world? They will all leave you thirsty, empty, and ruined. But if you're a child of God, there's meaning in the sorrow. There's meaning in the pain because there's a plan. God wants us to be a people of joy in our pain because we know he has a plan. I know the plans I have for you, Israel, for good, for a hope, Jeremiah 29 11. I just heard uh, Steve Green sing a song while I was studying, I was playing, and, and I, I wrote down the words. I, was so, I, I got it. They're not exactly right, but this is what I got. You don't have to have the plan in hand. I don't have to have the future in sight. I just have to follow you, by faith obey you. My assignment is to follow you, not to know the future. And so I don't know what your ultimate future is going to be. I don't know how it's going to work out, whatever you're going through. I I don't know. I don't know how that cancer is going to work out. I don't know about that economics. I do not know. And you probably don't know for sure. But you know what? All you've got to be sure of is I'm going to follow the one that does know. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him. May God help you in your sorrows, in the ruinous things we go through as humans. There is a Redeemer, and he will go with you and be with you. And it's this marvelous, marvelous love story I'll try to do it in four sermons. I'll go next week. Then we have a two-week break because we're having Steve Fernandez. Then we're going to have Robert Richardson on the first. I'll come back to it in October eventually. But oh, if you would read Ruth and keep looking for the word redeem, redeemer, kinsman 23 times, it's the picture of the redeemer. Our Father, He would still be ruined if there was no Redeemer. Jesus has made the difference in our ruin, our pain, our problems, our lostness. We were lost in Moab, as it were. We were far from God, far, far. And besides sending the hounds of heaven to keep nagging us. You need a redeemer. You need, you need something better than a, a cheap fix. You need a person. We found it all in Jesus. Rather, he found us. I ask that you would let us redeem people. Uh, offer you an offering today. I want to thank you for the offering last week when the attendance was down, the holiday was on us, and when us as leaders expected a, oh, bottom offering, it was abundant. Father, we thank you again that you've been delivering us this year of our economic plight forever. I don't want to bore the people saying it all the time, Lord, but... Thanksgiving seems to be something you can't overdo. We're thankful. We're thankful. And we're thankful that we get to give to you today. I pray for those out of work, those against the wall. Please supply their financial need in every way. And uh, always give them something to give. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say this, that tonight we will come to remember the greatest attack on the human family that occurred 2,000 years ago. It was the attack upon God who was bearing our sins. And one of his last thoughts, he said, after the siege and the attack And at Mount Moriah Would you just please keep remembering me? And so we'll remember him tonight We're going to be having No Nilo Sanchez Our precious missionary To the Philippines Any Filipinos in this church? My land's there On the city of Hercules You better tell all your friends You come out here No Nilo A go-getter Loves the Lord Any of you folks believe in missions? Okay, God does. He sent his son, and we want to do it. A lot of times folks say, oh, I don't want to go to, I want to hear another sermon on marriage. Well, you've heard 10, and you're not doing it, so don't, so yeah, that's not your problem. You need to come and back this man, and we're going to have Gabe Lopez over here. Gabe is our new junior high pastor, and, uh, and he brought his wife, Jennifer, and three children But most of you as a congregation haven't got to meet him, so I've asked him to share tonight. He only gets 15 minutes, and then we start throwing psalm books because he's an exhorter. He can go. And uh, we want you to meet him and and hear his story, and Gabe's going to be sharing tonight. And uh, a guy can't be too bad to have married a girl as pretty as Jennifer. So please come out tonight and hear them. Well... Uh, once you give all that money, what do you want me to do? I just say, you're blessed, and in your pain, don't forget there's a plan if you know Jesus. God bless you.